Good morning, everyone. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I, I, uh, I know that God is everywhere. I understand the concept of omniscience. Uh, but I love going to church Sunday morning. Uh, I uh, was uh, dedicated when I was uh, uh, six months old. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and the word is that uh, I was in church the Sunday after I was born. So uh, I guess it's just, but it, I, and again, I know it, the Lord is everywhere, and I don't have to uh, be in this building, and I'm so grateful we have technology, especially in times like these, but it is good to be together. You have uh, the outline, I think. Uh, it is going to be available on the screen too. Oh, bless you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Josh, for sending it out uh, to those of you who are on Zoom. And again, uh, you can follow along with where I'm heading uh, by using the outline if that helps you uh, today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the summer of 1977, I was interning as a student pastor at the Wesley Chapel Free Methodist Church in Scarborough. At that time, it was at the corner of Warden and Ellesmere, for those of you who know Toronto. It is now at the corner of Warden and Huntingwood, just north of the 401. Uh, the new church was built in the late 1970s, the Wesley Chapel Free Methodist Church. My primary assignment that summer was to be the link between the ministry of the Reverend Vernon DeMille, who was leaving Wesley Chapel as senior pastor, to go to the city of Kigali, Rwanda, to serve as a missionary, and the Reverend Fred Francis, who was coming to Wesley Chapel as the new senior pastor. Little did we know that Vernon and Susan DeMille would be in Rwanda in 1994, when the long-standing hatred between the two major tribal groups in Rwanda would result in the senseless slaughter of 500 to 800,000 people, the repercussions of which are still being felt today. You may have seen in the news just recently that someone from that uh, period of time was recently arrested and charged with war crimes yet again. Anyone who was in Rwanda at that time was fundamentally changed by that event. Canadian General Romeo Dallaire published a book, Shake Hands with the Devil. Vernon and Susan DeMille, now retired and living in Stirling, Ontario, were deeply affected by the trauma of the tragedy too. I was uh, listening to the CBC as I was driving from point A to point B during that time, and all of a sudden I hear this very familiar voice coming over the radio. It's Vernon DeMille. The CBC is interviewing him on a satellite phone. He's right in the midst of what was taking place, describing exactly what was happening. Uh, many of the people that were part of the ministry that he was directly, he and Susan were directly involved in, were murdered. And 
Vernon never really recovered from that. I just saw him recently again, and uh, it, it is amazing what has happened uh, to those who were involved. And you can well understand uh, what would happen to someone when they were in that kind of an awful situation. How does genocide happen? How is it possible that nations can still be rising against nations in this so-called enlightened age? Well, Jesus has the answer for us in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. As we continue to journey through the Sermon on the Mount during this season in the life of Auburn, Jesus will take the commandment as written and then do the backstory. Go behind the commandment to what actually is taking place in the human heart. He goes behind the act in all of the things that he'll talk about in Matthew chapter 5. He goes behind the act to the origin. In the case of these verses, he doesn't start at the outward act of murder, but he digs deeply into the heart of every man and woman. And when he does, he discloses the fact that it is not the action of a hand that he's primarily concerned about, but rather, it's the thought that counts. You have heard it said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is backing the issue of murder up to its beginning. How is it possible for a person to take another person's life? The answer, murder begins with common garden variety anger. And in this passage, Jesus describes three levels of anger, three gradations that we must understand if we are to understand the sixth commandment and how its meaning applies to me today. Anger. Verse 22, the first part of verse 22, Matthew chapter 5. As you know, the original language of the New Testament was Greek. The Greek language of the first century had two words for our one word, anger. So two Greek words that we commonly see in the New Testament that are translated anger. The first word was thumos. T-H-U-M-O-S, transliterated, which is described as being like the flash flame that comes from dry straw or dry hay when it's set on fire. Uh, when I was working for Harvey Pilgrim up in the Queens line those three summers, uh, working the, the, the farm during the summer, he was not putting hay into that mow until he was sure that it would not in any way uh, be consumed by fire. And, and again, uh, dry hay will obviously burn down a barn any time, but 
if it's not properly cured, it can start a fire any time before the winter comes. So it's, it's that flash flame. It's that anger which all of us know about this. Angry initially, but then it dies down and extinguishes itself. It's, it's over. We react and it's over. Now the second word used in Greek was the word orge, O-R-G-E, transliterated. William Barclay describes it this way. This is long-lived anger. It is the anger of a man or woman who nurses his wrath to keep it warm. It is the anger over which a person broods and which he or she will not allow it to die. So compare straw or hay that's really dry that sets a barn on fire and just burns everything down, but it's over. To anger that's nursed and fed by recurring experiences, time, and doesn't go away. Now you already know where I'm going with this. It's the second word that Jesus uses. It's the orge that Jesus uses in this passage. It's the smoldering, long-lived anger. This is the one that Jesus uses here in verse 22. And that anger, Jesus says, will be dealt with by the judgment court, which, again, to make a, a parallel, would probably be the local village council. It all starts with long-lived anger, wrath which is nursed, anger over which one broods. But if it is not checked, it doesn't stop there. It goes to the next level higher. Again, there's three gradations here. And that second gradation is the word raka. Anyone who says to his brother, second part of verse 22, chapter 5, raka will be answerable to the Sanhedrin, which is what some of the older translations use there. I'll come to that in just a minute. Now, here's the interesting thing about raka which I find totally fascinating. We see this several times in New Testament Scripture, but here's another example. It is simply an untranslatable word in Greek or English. So they just kept the Aramaic expression in the Greek. It's an Aramaic expression of abuse. It literally in Aramaic means empty. So what does it mean in terms of the context in which Jesus is offering here? It's like calling someone a brainless idiot. An empty head. Or a contemptuous name of any sort. Calling a person a derogatory name and meaning it. Rakah is a higher level of anger and hatred, and it sent a person to the next level of judgment, which, again, using Jewish jurisprudence of the first century would be the Sanhedrin, which would be the supreme court of Israel in Jesus' time, of course, where Jesus himself uh, went uh, the night of his arrest. So notice the gradation upwards. Anger, that brooding anger, sends you to the village court. Raka, you empty head, the Sanhedrin. 
But there's one more level here. And the third one is the most serious. You fool. Again, verse 22, Matthew chapter 5. What does it mean? To destroy the character of another person. To destroy the character of another person. The destruction of another person's character or self-image, a person created by the same God that created you and I, will make me in danger of the fire of hell. Now, we would not be surprised if Jesus had said that a murderer would be sentenced to the fire of hell. But we're more than a little surprised when we're told by Jesus that the person who assassinates another person's character is in danger of the fire of hell. We reel when we hear of someone's life taken, young woman's life just recently taken here in the city of Peterborough, for which there's simply not even an arrest yet. We reel when we hear about that. But do our spirits react the same way when we speak negatively of another person or are part of a conversation in which another person's character is being destroyed? Jesus says that there was a day when the concern was the final and ultimate result of anger, which, of course, is murder. You take murder to its logical and take anger to its logical place, and you end up with murder. But the real issue is not murder, Jesus says. It's the anger that is nursed and broods in our hearts. It's the thought that counts. And if that anger is there, Jesus says, it will eventually come out either by our words or by our hand. So then the question comes for we who live in Christian community in the 21st century. How do we deal with anger? Anger is a natural and normal human response to the various things that we experience as human beings. There's no way to get rid of it. It's going to happen. So when it happens, how do we deal with it? I'd like to do the same thing. I'd like to look at the three gradations and look, with, look at each one of them and, and suggest uh, ways to deal with them each and every, uh, at each and every level. So, anger. Uh, You've got to get rid of it. <laughs> the only way to deal with anger is to get rid of it. But then the question comes, how do I get rid of it? I only have one possible solution, answer, and it fits with some of the things that were part of the, the sharing time this morning. The only way to get rid of anger is to forgive the person who has wronged you, just as God in Christ forgave you. We say it every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. See that continuum there? I love that. That is not an accident that Jesus put that together. 
We forgive because we're forgiven. Forgiven people forgive. Jesus, in fact, you have to say this based on that phrase from the Lord's Prayer, that sentence from the Lord's Prayer. He links his forgiveness of us with how we forgive others. It's the model. General Oglethorpe was the founder of the colony of Georgia. And in uh, 1736, John Wesley, the founder of uh, Methodism, uh, who at that point was not in a, a, a living, uh, we would call him a, a saved relationship with the Lord Jesus, but was in a missionary role uh, with the Church of England, uh, was uh, asked by Oglethorpe to come uh, to Georgia. And uh, he came, and it was an absolute disaster. If you want to read uh, that part of Wesley's life, he was uh, converted May 24, 1738, about two years before uh, his conversion, this was taking place. And this was part of the lead-up for what God did in his life on May the 24, 1738. But there was a, a nugget of truth in things that John Wesley said before his conversion, and this is one of them. General Oglethorpe, the founder of Georgia, said to John Wesley on one occasion, I never forgive to which John Wesley responded, then I hope, sir, you never sin. Anger, there's only one antidote for it. And I don't want to minimize the process. I know that it's just not as easy as saying, I forgive you. Karen and I have gone through incredible hurt in our lives as we have watched our dear daughter's marriage come apart at hands of, a, of an evil husband is the only way to put it. And, and we, have, we have seen firsthand what that can do. And, and anger is something that is real, and you've got to deal with it. And it is a process. But the final and ultimate antidote anger has to be forgiveness. Okay, the second level. Let's go to Raka, you idiot. Well, this is an easy one because it comes right out of our childhood. Your parents or your grandparents, someone has said to you somewhere along the road of your life, don't call people names. That's what this is all about. Name-calling hurts another person, but it hurts the person who does the name-calling too because it lessens the respect that you and I have for another human being. And that's always wrong because we were all created by the same Creator, God. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. You know why? Because He made every single human being. Sticks and stones will hurt my bones. What's the rest of it, folks? But names will never hurt me. Is that true or false? It is absolutely false. Names will hurt, deeply hurt. 
I've had people tell me as a pastor in my office, through tears they have told me, how they were labeled in childhood with a name that they have spent the rest of their life trying to shake. And again, it was done in fun. A grandparent said, you'll never amount to anything. You've got no abilities or you know, some kind of a, an off-the-hand comment that probably didn't, they didn't, they didn't want it to register the way it did, but it did. Because names do hurt. Raka. Don't call people names. Third level, you fool, which is the destruction of the character of another person by our words. How do I avoid saying something that I will later regret? Ever had that feeling? Why did I say that? First of all, I didn't mean it. I wish I hadn't said it, and it just slipped out. Well, here's a little formula that I've tried to implement, not always successfully. <clears throat> and here it is. If God would have me say this, if Jesus would say the words that I'm about to say, proceed. If not, stop. It's almost like you have to have a 10-second delay in your brain before you say something. And those 10 seconds can sometimes save you one awful pile of trouble down the road of time. But what if we are hearing those words, not saying them? We've got the check on our own mouth, not because of our own smarts, but because of the grace of God. But what if we are part of a conversation where something's being said that we're feeling really uncomfortable about? One of the people that has influenced me the most is a man named Donald Bastian. <clears throat> he was the national leader of the Free Methodist Church at the time that I was ordained till 1993, 1974 to 1993. He had an incredible influence on a whole generation of young pastors. In the summer of 1986, uh, Bishop Bastian, who is now 95 years of age, still writing, still now he's blogging. He's got a Just Call Me Pastor blog. And he and his wife, Kathleen, are married 72 years, both in good health in a retirement home in Mississauga. He's still writing like crazy. But he wrote in 1986 a little document called Ten Rules for Pastors. Taken seriously, they would have really had a, a huge positive impact on, on one's life. And so the response was so positive that he was asked uh, to write ten rules for laypersons. And so he did. And here's what number seven says. Now listen to this for sage advice. Do not listen to evil speaking. When evil speaking begins, fall silent. If this does not arrest evil speaking, ask, have you spoken directly with the person you criticize? 
pretty good advice still. So you're part of a conversation, you're feeling uncomfortable, don't feed it. And then ask the question, have you talked to the person who has caused the difficulty in your life? So there you have it. Anger, get rid of it. And how do we get rid of it? There's only one way. And again, I will not minimize process here. Sometimes I hear someone forgive someone the day after something terrible has taken place, and I think, I don't know whether you can actually say that yet. So there's process, but ultimately and finally, forgiveness is the only antidote to anger. Raka, don't call people names. Don't label children. You fool, don't gossip, don't gossip, and don't listen to gossip. But there's a further word here, which I'm going to quickly look at. Jesus says that our worship of God is directly connected to our worship with our brothers and sisters. And here's this fascinating thing about if you're in the place of worship and you realize someone's mad at you, leave the place of worship and go fix it and then come back and worship. Here's what John R.W. Stott writes about this concept. If you are in a service of worship and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait until the service has ended. Seek out your brother and ask his forgiveness. First go, then come. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your worship to God. That's the process Jesus offers for a brother or sister, but there's a word of instruction for reconciling with an enemy too, which is again quite enlightening. If you're on your way to court because of your failure to pay a debt, don't let the situation be resolved by the court. Settle out of court. Otherwise, the judge may throw you into debtor's prison. You will not get out till you've paid the last penny. So those two words that are added after the three gradations, you get these two paragraphs, two sentences in that passage of Scripture dealing with how we deal with each other in those various, those two situations. Now, where do I want to conclude this message this morning? I think that what we're getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, and not just in this passage, but you're going to see it in some of the passages that Glenn will be speaking from as well, including next Sunday, which he'll be doing on, on, on adultery. What is, what is really the nub? What is the teaching moment here that Jesus is driving at? Why does he say, You've heard it said, but I say to you. Why would he go from the act of murder to the thought that is behind the act of murder? I think he's getting at what we as Christians would call the concept of holiness. Now, I know as soon as I use that word holiness, there's, there's 50 different definitions. And backs go up. And, and if I was to give that, use that word, in a free Methodist church this morning, there would be a totally different concept probably than in Auburn Bible Chapel. But as I have thought about this idea of holiness, which is all over both Old and New Testaments, you cannot walk away from the concept of holiness in the Scriptures. It's there. 
be holy as I am holy. And that's Old Testament. Then you get a passage like this in the New Testament. I, I think we've muddied the, the waters on this issue of holiness. We've made it too difficult. No human being can ever be perfect. If holiness eats equals perfection, then it's, it's, a, it's over before it starts. Because there is only one perfect being. And there's only one person who ever walked on this earth that was perfect. And he now is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I. So if holiness cannot be perfection, if we can never not be angry, then what is, what does it mean to be a holy person, to be, to, to be blameless in his sight, using that Ephesians concept? I think it has to do with intention, not perfection. It's my heart's desire to be like Jesus. It's my heart's desire that, that I would deal with anger in a way that would reflect the beauty of Jesus. To, to not say I'll never be angry ever again. That's the perfection thing. It's impossible. You're going to walk out of this building today and somebody's going to make you angry. That's the natural order of things. It's called the presence of sin in the world. That's why we need a Savior. So what does it mean to want to be, to want to live a holy life, to look like Jesus at the end of the day? To sign His name at the end of the day as Daniel sang in that song. What does it mean? I think it has to do with intention. It's my desire to live a life that would be pleasing to Jesus. It's your desire. You want that too. There, I don't know a believer that doesn't want that. That's the focus. That's the way we're moving. And as long as we're heading in that direction, the Holy Spirit will help us. He'll be the check in our spirit to say, you've got to deal with this. And it's a, a person who is striving to live a holy life that responds in obedience to the check of the Holy Spirit and says, I am going to fix this. And that makes the difference. And I think that's what makes healthy believers is to say, I know that I am a sinner saved by grace, but it's my desire with the help of the Lord to at the end of the day, as a dear friend of mine used to say, have his smile of approval on my life. Jesus, we can't do it ourselves. We've got to have your help. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the presence of your Spirit, guiding, directing, leading, correcting, rebuking. May we rise up in obedience to what you call us to do in the attitudes and the actions of our lives. In Jesus' precious name.